fact that we've kind of engineered fun out of our lives, you know, is leading to a de-evolution of those soft skills that are going to become important as we automate more. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, Dr. Mike Rucker is a self-described fun expert who helps people have more fun and be more productive as a result. But he certainly didn't start his career going down that path. Mike's first job, so to speak, was creating a fanzine for skateboarders when he was in the seventh grade. And his willingness to put himself out there, coupled with a bit of ingenuity, got him the opportunity to interview some big musicians. He went on to study communication and filmmaking in college, and ultimately his first professional job was at Universal Studios. And while he loved the work, watching his colleagues actually get in at 7 a.m. and not leave until 8 p.m. and miss out on having significant relationships outside of work didn't appeal to him. So he pivoted into a career creating advertisements and websites, and he actually made a name for himself in the technology sector. But here's where things went too good for Mike, or so he believes. Because Mike thinks entrepreneurs that get too many wins too early on can get too cocky for their own good. So full of confidence, Mike decided to do something he knew nothing about, open a taco stand at a Manhattan beach near LAX. He spent all the money that he made from his last tech exit and then lost it all. So he pivoted again going back to the university to get a PhD in psychology. His research today is centered on the importance of fun and play, and that is what Mike continues to focus on today. Mike's top tips for fun and productivity are stop using social media to wind down. That's a huge one. Create a time log for your week and be honest about the activities that aren't moving you forward. Replace unproductive time with opportunities for fun, delight, wonder, and play. Use lunch hours and weekends as actual breaks or mini vacations from work. Dedicate big chunks of time to particular tasks rather than trying to grab a few minutes here and there and avoid multitasking, especially when you're with your children or other loved ones. There's an incredible amount of value in this conversation, so bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, Embrace for Impact. Dr. Mike Rucker, very first question. I am so curious what your answer is going to be. Who was your childhood hero? That's an interesting question. I think, you know, uh, I had a portfolio of sort of different heroes. I was pretty independent. So I'd sort of bounced around from one to another. But I think part of my story 
of looking at peak performance and kind of you know tackling audacious goals is definitely underpinned with um, Dave Scott being a local hero from my hometown of Davis, California. Uh, he's uh, the first Ironman uh, finisher um, in the you know official Ironman, um, and I think he went on to win several years in a row. And so you know this idea that you can um, build towards something and and tackle something as audacious as an Ironman was is grounded in having some access to Dave, and he continued to be a mentor up until um, you know I, I kind of aged out of being a triathlete. But I I think he sort of set the stage for my affinity for peak performance, and so I'll give him credit where credits due. Now, you were an entrepreneurial kid from the, from the get-go. I mean, I read in your bio that you started a, a business when you were in, in seven years old, I believe, or, no, or in seventh, seventh grade. grade. Yeah. Okay. And it was a sports business. So it's, yeah, you, you actually, if you look at your, you know, your adolescence, you definitely were interested in peak performance. And, and so what, from an early age, what drew you to that? I think having, you know, being the creator of your own sort of outcome, right? And also figuring out where you fit in. So the reference that you're, uh, that you've given the audience is at, in seventh grade, I created a fanzine for skateboarders. And that really transpired because I wanted to be part of that tribe. But at the end of the day, I wasn't crushing skateboarding the same way my friends were. Um, but I wanted a way to contribute. And uh, so ultimately that, manifested as the way that you know I could still hang with the guys but not necessarily have to excel in the way they were doing and it also provided a creative outlet so that expanded into you know finding neat ways to get myself through the back door of you know access to people that I thought were pretty cool uh, so I found out um, back then before there was an you know the internet made folks a lot more accessible than they were back then that you could get anyone's home address or phone number by going to a music union, like top level uh, musicians. If you found out who, what music union they were a part of, they would readily give anyone that type of information if they said, Hey, I just want to contact them for an interview or whatnot. So, you know, Davis is a small town, but ultimately it's a college town. So we'd have these awesome musicians come in. And so at an early age, I found out that you know, with a little bit of innovation, you could get access to things that you want access to um, by looking for those back doors. You know, with just a little bit of ingenuity, it wasn't necessarily hard work that would get you somewhere. It was doing it a little bit different than other people were doing it. That's fascinating. You know, and podcasting has kind of become that that medium as well because it's very it's a very low barrier to entry. It's a relatively innovative way to reach out and connect with your heroes and experts and, and learn from them and and connect with them. And it sounds like you did the same thing early on when you were at Davis. And, and who was the, the most fascinating person that you connected with during that period of time? Um, I think the untouchables were... Uh, I really liked Scott at the time. And so they had come through, you know, talking about that specifically. Um, and just being able to, they kind of understood what was happening. Like, holy cow, this little 13 year old kid <laughs> called us up for an interview. And so, you know, again, you know, we're living in an influencer economy, right? So this 
wouldn't be that spectacular, right? That the kind of backdoors to access there, you know, those stories are abound nowadays, right? But back then in the eighties, they're like, who is this little coop that, yeah. that we thought was going to, you know, provide a story for Rolling Stone or whatever it is. And so they stood up to the plate and, you know, they were really cool and it was just neat, you know? And then I realized like, if I did things a little bit differently, there's prices to pay for that, right? Certainly I, you know, I think when you put yourself out there, you know, there were a lot of times I was bullied and things of that nature because I was doing something a little bit different. I remember in that same era um, through the magazine, I created a, a skateboard contest and that one sort of backfired with regards to, you know, some of the cooler kids going, who is this coop that, you know, thinks he can be part of this tribe. So, you know, there's, there's pros and cons to everything. You've got, you know, I think that period of time um, gave me thicker skin because of that. Cause you know, as you up your game, you, you know, people are going to look at you more critically as well. Right. We see that with entrepreneurs. We see that with uh, artists and um, certainly as a kid that doesn't, hasn't developed the wisdom and tools to uh, sort of protect themselves from that type of scrutiny. It was tough, but that particular, and, and sorry, I got off the rails a little bit, you know, to answer discreetly, it was definitely that experience, but um I think I did want, you know, that there's a cautionary tale there as well, right? Like as you get these wins, you also get a bigger target on your back because, you know, you are doing things differently than, than other folks. And sometimes yeah. people are critical of that. Yeah. Like who's Mike to go hang out with the untouchables? I actually remember the untouchables as well. I mean, I, I, I loved ska music when I was in high school and I was just actually was on Amazon prime music the other day and was just trying to introduce my kids to some mu- new music genre or an old music genre and found an old mighty mighty boss tones nice. album and introduced that to them but the the rest of your i mean if you look at your resume your bio i mean it's very eclectic i mean you're you've kind of you've bounced around a lot and you've accomplished a lot of different things in your professional career and and i'm curious what amount of a desire or an innate desire to realize your potential, what role that played in all of the things that you've done? Because I mean, you, you did the, the local sports magazine, you've done stuff for, you know, television and film, you've started a, a, you know, digital marketing company. I mean, you've done a lot of different things and, and to some people, you know, it doesn't seem necessarily focused but I don't necessarily see it that way. Yeah, I mean, that's totally fair. I think for me, my I get bored easily, right? And so I've certainly lived an unconventional path. And I think I look at life as chapters, right? And so again, every decision that you make has a pro and con. But for me, a life well lived requires variety. And so... You know, each one of these were interesting stepping stones that were sort of in the flow of the way things were evolving, you know, outside of my control. So I knew that I wanted to do something creatively. I knew that from a fairly early age, right? Started with a magazine. So as an undergrad, I got a communications major because at that time, anyone that wanted to go into media, that's what they did. And then uh, went to graduate school for film. So my first real professional job was at Universal Studios. 
Um, and I think then I realized that I still wanted an outside vice, right? You know, ultimately where I am today, I hope people avoid burnout and sort of, you know, none of us say work-life balance anymore because, you know, I think work-life integration is more appropriate, you know, with the advent of the phone where we're accessible 24 hours a day. It's just a different world now than it was back then. But um, even then, you know, watching my colleagues get in at seven and not leave till eight and none of them having significant relationships outside of their work environment was something that didn't appeal to me. So even though I loved my time at Universal and, uh, you know, relish those years, I knew pretty quickly that that wasn't going to be the, you know, my life forever. And so at that at period of time was the dot-com boom. And those skills that I learned, you know, creating content for movies transferred pretty easily into, you know, the online world. And so, um, you know, pivoting from, you know, movie making into creating advertisements at that time, you know, the agency that we had at the time was a flash house. And so, um, you know, building flash websites, because this was even before SEO was highly desirable. And so, you know, we could create those types of products with high margin. Um, and I jumped straight from entertainment into that. And then, you know, that I really grew an affinity for technology at that point. And, uh, you know, so basically from that point on, that's what I've done. There is one inflection point um, that's fairly important because it's very much sort of the pivotal chapter in my origin story since we've used that term. And that is, you know, I think all entrepreneurs, you know, at some point, especially the ones that have had wins early on, almost get too cocky for their own good and need, you know, every story that's been interesting to me, there's been this point where you've gotten knocked off your pedestal, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that differs for each entrepreneur. For me, it was, okay, I made my name in the technology sector. I'm such a, you know, badass entrepreneur. I can do anything I want. And so I tried to start a restaurant. We were living in Manhattan Beach and I wanted to live the dream, have a little taco stand, you know, right near the pier. For those that don't know where Manhattan Beach is, it's right near LAX. It's kind of a prominent area of um, Southern Los Angeles. And I had no business being around a restaurateur. (laughs) So a lot of the um, money that I had gotten from the last exit um, was put into that endeavor and lost. And, you know, so that was a good, you know, when we're looking at my sort of eclectic timeline, you could say, wow, that guy had no business doing that. But some of the lessons that I learned from that failure have grounded me, you know, throughout the rest of the journey. And so um, I think the two biggest lessons from that are one, you know, definitely do your due diligence. One of the reasons that failed is that um, I cut a corner uh, and didn't get, you know, didn't invest wisely in good legal advice. Um, And so that's one of those ones where you're at a crossroads, right? Some entrepreneurs are going to be celebrated for cutting corners. You know, we talk about that all the time in uh, uh, lean modalities, you know, like, hey, just do what it takes to get your minimal viable product out there. And then there are other folks um, like myself that cut a corner and ultimately that was the demise of their um, endeavor. But because of um, success bias, right, we tend to overhear the wins and not hear enough about the failures, right? But those that have gone through it won't forget. And so, you know, now I always approach any problem with an immense amount of prudence. 
um, that I wouldn't have otherwise if I had continued to just, you know, knock things out of the park. And then the other is realizing what's important, right? And, you know, choosing wisely. And so a lot of times I'll play things more forward than I would have, I think, if I didn't have that experience, you know, Mm -hmm. and to use your words, this sort of eclectic timeline that is my experience. My friends, Master the Key is still having a positive impact in the lives of others. And the message of Master the Key is a transformational one. And now not only can you get it in ebook format and print format, but as of this week, actually last week, by the time you're listening to this, you can now get it on Audible and iTunes as an audiobook. So hit pause, head over to Amazon or iTunes and pick up a copy or two of Master the Key, a story to free your potential, find meaning and live life on purpose and give yourself the gift of that book or give it away as a gift to someone that you love and care about. So head over to Amazon and do that right now and then come back to the show. It all serves a purpose, though. Nothing, you know, goes to waste unless we allow it to. And and so you had all of this experience, and and at some point you went back to school again and became a PhD in psychology, correct? And correct. you've got your expertise in fun. And when you reached out to me, I'm fascinated by the topic of fun because I had literally just read. A study that PricewaterhouseCoopers did, where the most in-demand skills are the soft skills today—the the creativity, the collaboration, really the the stuff that that we used to have when we were kids—and we ditched because we thought we had to hustle and grind our way to success—are now the most in-demand skills because everything else is being automated, and so. How does one actually let me back up? Sure. At what point do we stop focusing on having fun? So I think that's there seems to be commonalities, right? Everyone's path is different, but I think the primary mechanism is as we grow into adulthood, there are all sorts of heuristics, which is you know, sort of a pedantic word for shortcuts that we need to create because as we mature, more and more information is sent our way, right? And so the anecdote I like to use when I get this type of question is in doing research for my book that's coming out next year, I went to a lot of children's museums. Um, you know, And that was more focused on the importance of play. But a really interesting takeaway that wasn't necessarily why I had gone there in the first place is looking at these experiential play environments that are built by people that you know have an academic interest in you know creating amazing places for kids to play and a child will go into these environments and know exactly what to do right it the, the world is their oyster they have all these cool little blocks or whatever the environment's built to do you know sometimes it's steam based so it will be you know putting circuits together sometimes You know, it's um, physics based, so like building something that can fly, whatever it is, the kid doesn't need any instruction, right? They just go in and immediately start creating their own environment and almost instantly having fun. An adult will go into that environment paralyzed. What am I supposed to do here? You know, it's amazing. Like, if you (laughs) don't see it for yourself, 
you're just like, whoa, like, you know, as an adult, we need to be given instructions because that's sort of what happens, right? You get to your job and you sit at your computer. No one tells you what to do. You're just going to stare at it, right? Because that's how we've evolved. The problem is that once you get to that level, pretty much what you just described from that study and a lot of other studies is that it reduces your capacity to be innovative and creative because you've lost those skills, right? You're waiting for someone to tell you what to do. And so to instill fun and play into any type of environment that requires you to be innovative you know, is a great ingredient for that. And then the added component is that we're all burning out, right? And so if you don't have these opportunities for renewal, whether inside or outside of work, if you're kind of approaching everything through drudgery or, you know, like sort there's there there's rich information here. So I say this in a very cursory way, and I don't want anyone to be triggered that there's definitely, you know, reasons for social media and and good reasons for it. But social media pacifies a lot of us as well. And so the reason I had to kind of you know give the preamble is that I I said this you know directly and people are like, oh, so you know, Dr. Rucker's saying that all social media is bad. Absolutely not. Social media has its place. And if it, if you're deliberately using it, then great. But a lot of us get, you know, we get off work at 7, 8 p.m. We're tired and we use it to pacify us as a variable reward. Um, not realizing that not only is it not replenishing us, but it's actually, you know, because there's no oxytocin release, it's really only little hits of dopamine is actually, you know, continuing the damage, right? Either through FOMO or through the, you know, people that are using that as an escapism, you know, it can lead to bad sleep. And so, you know, if you can kind of break these cycles, you know, and again, I'm answering your question twofold, but the, the, to bullet it out, you know the fact that we're we've kind of engineered fun out of our lives you know is leading to a de-evolution of those soft skills that are going to become important as we automate more and then second it's leading to higher rates of burnout because since we're starting to lose our ability to have fun through all sorts of different environmental triggers we're getting more burned out faster mm-hmm. and and i i love studying companies and learning from companies and organizations that have become aware of that burnout factor and the and the reality that that if not given the freedom to do it while at work they won't do it at home they've created policies to allow their people to to build fun back into their life patagonia is a is a company Love that them. comes to mind where they have a let my people go surfing policy yep um or you know, or mountain climbing, or whatever the outdoor activity is, because they understand that that outlet is going to prevent the burnout. But more importantly, it's actually going to stimulate and fire up neuro pathways that will empower and give the employee a greater opportunity for success at for successfully executing whatever their task might be. At work, and and I, I learned that first from um, from interviewing Stephen Kotler, who was you know who's got all about you know the, his flow work and all of that stuff. But yeah, one of my mentors, Dr. Gervais, is uh, an advisor for the um, Flow Genome Project, so I know Steve's work well. Yeah, yeah, and and I love uh, 
Michael's Finding Mastery podcast. It's so fascinating. You know, the, I just hung the reality out with him a couple is, of days ago. Oh, was, really? Oh, man. Yeah, he, he's what in the South as well. He's getting yeah. uh, ready for the big game Monday. I, yeah, I think. Monday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, uh, the reality is that like most of my audience don't, they're, they're solopreneurs or they're side hustlers, right? And they don't have a policy, somebody that's put a policy in place to let them go surfing. They have to make a decision themselves, but they don't feel they have, they don't feel like they have enough time or they feel like it would be wasteful or they're, tr- they're grinding, they're hustling, they're listening to Gary V, you know, they're on social media to go back to your point and they're seeing all of the stuff going on right now. It's like, okay, we're, it's December 1st, sprint to the finish line. Oh, and while you're doing it, while you're still sprinting to the finish line, make sure that you're planning for the beginning of the new year. And so it's like this overwhelm. And it just, I, I personally feel like I sometimes end up shutting down as a result of all of that noise and clutter. So how can we take the reins back and build in that space so that we can, you know, reawaken those creative soft skills that are so in demand today. Yeah. So one thing I've noticed, have you noticed that Gary V, I think because he's been, he's um, changing his tune a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Because the science doesn't support um, a lot of what he's prescribed. He's an interesting guy though. I want to make sure he, um, freely gave me some of his time in the past. And so I hate to beat him up. I mean, we all have, look, I was a hustler, right? So, you know, you can look at things people have said a decade ago, and it doesn't mean they can't evolve their narrative, right? But like Cardone is one that isn't really evolving. Um, and I always find it really interesting that these thought leaders are brought in, you know, as uh, people to rally the troops that ultimately are cogs for you know bigger organizations right like yeah of course you need to hustle and ultimately since we're um you know in an environment where intellect is the sort of you know working goods right then it come it's almost nefarious when folks are paid to spread this message but as you had mentioned your audience is solopreneurs um and yeah so that's a really interesting Conundrum, right? Because ultimately you are the champion of your own destiny. I think that there's a couple of things there. I'll give you a tool and then I'll back it up by science, right? So the easiest way to do that is to create some sort of time log for your week. And so there's only 168 hours in any given week. I kind of borrowed this from my background in well being, you know, because registered dietitians use nutritional journaling all the time. And then after I kind of molded it into my own product, uh, I was introduced to an author by the name of Laura Vanderkam that's written a great book about doing exactly this. But ultimately, if you look at your 168 hours and look at it critically, you'll find big fissures where you think that you're actually being productive, but you're not being productive at all. right? And so taking an honest audit of um, how you spend any given week and looking at that critically about, you know, is this really work or is this pacifying me so that I'm staying busy, which, you know, makes me feel like I, I'm doing things, but isn't really moving me forward. And then, you know, taking the next step of removing those things that aren't really moving you forward 
and replacing them with opportunities for fun, delight, wonder, and play. Hmm. Um, and then the second, you know, the science backs this up. So Jason Freed, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him from yeah, 37 uh, thir- Signals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's doing a great job, you know, on the circuit, sort of being the anecdote for the Gary V's and the Cordones of the world, you know, showcasing research that if we are grinding things out and working too hard, we're actually, our output is a lot less than if we back things out um, and create opportunities for renewal. You know, so, you know, at the end of the day, if it's 40 hours a week times two or 60 hours a week times 0.8, like which one do you want? And not Mm -hmm. only that, you have the added benefit of the additional 20 hours actually, you know, taking the ownership back of that, reconnecting with friends, which is so important. You know, being a better parent if you have children, um, all of those things. So, you know, sort of fantasizing and romanticizing sacrifice has just scientifically been proven now over and over again to be folly because you're not doing anything. What you're doing is kidding yourself that, you know, I'm sacrificing this for the greater good, but you're not. You're actually Mm -hmm. doing harm, not only to yourself because you're producing less, but to those around you because they miss you. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. And and you end up not just being burned out, but being lonely and burned out. And yep. and I think that is what there's a you know a real surge in depression and suicide. A lot of it has to do with the fact that people feel alone. And yep. uh I've struggled with that personally myself. And it's it's a challenge. And I, I think that guys like you and and others are really doing important work to help equip people with the tools and the resources needed to to circumnavigate what what may be coming down the pipe if they don't confront it head on because we are getting burned out we are doing it alone and we 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 suffer from uh, a lack of community in fact I love that you mentioned the 168 hour rule because I actually used that. I actually self prescribed that to write my own book, which published in 2019, in April of 2019. And Congrats, man. Because that, speaking of getting burnt out, yeah. um, I can only imagine <laughs> everyone has their own path, but all of them seem fraught with, <laughs> with uh, obstacles and enemies. Yeah, I mean, but if it weren't for that 168 hour doing an audit and really being honest with myself about how much time I was wasting on social media and other things, I wouldn't have been able to tackle that project. And as a result of doing that, I really discovered that I am lacking in my own life the type of community that I desire. And it's up to me to go curate it. It's not like it's going to one day show up on my front doorstep and say here we are you know it's up to me and each and every one of us so how do we step out and cultivate that and do it in a in a fun and creative way so i think you know you need to look at the activities in your life critically i mean there's a whole you know i filled a book with different strategies on how to do just this but i think the low hanging fruit is really looking for opportunities to you know create fun in your life the one thing that becomes difficult to describe it in you know an hour or less is that fun really is 
um, something that is subjective, right? And so, for instance, as simple as being on the spectrum of introverted or extroverted, there was a great study out of Brown just recently where anyone would benefit from the mindset of looking at your lunch hour as a break, right? Because too many of us sit at lunch and kind of just peruse the internet and eat you know, at our desks. But truly separating yourself from work and treating that hour as an opportunity for renewal, you know, and especially, you know, again, I have a bias towards fun, but, you know, instilling some fun in it is an awesome strategy that applies to almost everybody. The problem is some people are going to have more fun doing that alone. Some people are going to have more fun inviting a friend, right? And so um, even early on, again, you know, I gave credit where credit's due to Gary Vee, kind of evolving his message. My message is evolved because most of the research indicates that we should cohort with other people, right? Certainly, like you look at some of the affinity of various religious groups and and community and things of that nature. Um, people are happier when they cohort with other people. But if you're truly introverted and you're sort of obligated to go to lunch, like let's say someone listening to this who's a leader is like, "Oh, I'm going to take Mike's advice," and you know what? My employees aren't having that much fun, so I'm going to take them out to. TGI Fridays for lunch, and we're going to have a good time. And that employee happens to be an introvert. So now that particular employee feels a sense of duty. That's not a fun lunch for them. You're actually just creating an extra hour of work, right? Mm -hmm. So I bring that up again, similar to sort of the warning, you know, right before I said, okay, there are probably better things you can do um, than, you know, uh, binge watch social media. Mm -hmm. Um, Granted, there's going to be, you know, nuances to this, but you know, looking at those opportunities, like how can I have more fun at my lunch? Um, I uh, generally state a study by uh, Dr. Holmes out of UCLA where uh, she simply asked people to go into their weekend looking at it as a vacation. Because most of us, you know, especially hustlers, look at the weekend as an opportunity to catch up. I certainly fell victim to that. So, you know, I'd be like, oh, I don't have my work. You know, I'll forsake a little bit of time with, with the kids and I'll use that as an opportunity to catch up. Which you know, ultimately, over time, looking at it critically, because I am you know more deliberate about how I'm spending my time, it really wasn't leading to the end result that I wanted. Right? I meant because it wasn't organized well. I wasn't really producing that much. I felt good about it because I was busy, but it was forsaking time with my kids, which is actually something I'd like to prioritize. Mm-hmm. So I got more critical about that. And then you know, I'm a parent, so this is going to apply to me. But you you know. Um, so take this as a nugget that can sort of be applied to anything, you know, no, no matter where you are at in life. But for me, I have the obligation to, you know, take my kids to do extracurricular activities. And one of those for my daughter is dancing. And so I found myself kind of wasting an hour. You know, I sat around, you know, watching my daughter dance. And so, you know, and that was just like, hey, how can I make this one hour better? Right. Where some productivity experts might say, Oh, you know, you have your mobile phone at your ready. Why don't you clear your inbox? Right. Like, eh, I don't know. Like, science is now suggesting that's actually kind of a dumb use of that hour because you, you know, I think we now, most um, people that have expertise in, in that, you know, especially academic expertise, realizing that chunking our work is a lot better, right? There's a time for email and it shouldn't be like the 15 minutes you have on the toilet. Um, we actually now know there's a huge, <laughs> Cognitive price to pay, you know, for shifting tasks, you know, in smaller intervals. 
Mm-hmm. So even though this isn't necessarily my swim lane, I certainly think part of my narrative is looking at ways to you know engage in activity more mindfully and more deliberate um, in longer chunks, right? So do your email when you've scheduled time to do your email rather than being all over the place. Because mm-hmm. like in that instance with my daughter, right? And I'm sure this would apply to people in all sorts of different you know areas of their life. If I get a shitty email, why you know, she's dancing, that's ruined. Like she's going to come up happy. Oh, dad, this was awesome. You know, did you see me do my flip? And I'm going to be like, ah, I, you know, Joe Blow just yeah, fucking ruined my day. And excuse me, sorry, when I start to get comfortable, I let, I let explicitives loose. I hope no kids are listening, speaking of amazing daughters and sons. But you, you, know, you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, no, not- I totally agree. I've been there. I've been there. And, and I, am, I am totally guilty for not, blocking out that time and it, and it and it and it ends up causing friction in my own life and relationships and in all of my other activities because if I do when I do set out the time where I'm, I'm going to check my email at 8 a.m and I'm not going to check my email the rest of the day otherwise you just live in your email all day long and you're just constantly reacting that's why I, I started to turn off notifications on my phone and on my email so that I'm not getting pinged all day long and I'm able to focus on whatever task I'm actually doing. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think now that folks, you know, some of the folks that I admire, like James Clear and Nir Eyal and BJ Fogg, they're looking, you know, more studies are suggesting that that is as motivating Um, as the variable reward of Facebook or Instagram. So I don't think that was clearly apparent, you know, even five years ago, but now we think it's the same sort of dopamine hit. Like even though intuitively it doesn't sound like it should be, the excitement that we get from sort of an entertaining meme when we scroll Instagram is the same of, oh, wow, this is interesting, right? Um, Because it distracts us from our boredom or whatever it is. Um, And I think that's, pretty profound, you know, that it is a mechanism that has the same sort of triggers and, you know, honestly, a reward, right? Because you're getting information um, in the sense of those behavioral loops that we don't fully appreciate. Um, And it's in that sense, it's really powerful, even though we look at it as a commodity, right? Oh, it's just email. But it has quite a bit of power in our lives, especially when you look at it by time spent, right? You know, back in the day when we villainized television, it'd always be like, oh my gosh, people watch two hours per day of television. Um, and now, <laughs> you know, we don't talk about it enough, but if we look at how much time people spend in their emails, um, it's sad to be quite honest. Oh my gosh, it's all day long. Yeah, I mean, yeah. between the phone and the desktop and whatever. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the impact entrepreneur told you to call. 
You know, as you mentioned earlier, it's it's impossible to cover all of this stuff in an hour, let alone even you know reading a book. But but interacting with you and having a conversation, all of these things together in in concert with each other, the book, podcast interviews, interacting with you online, interacting with you personally, can be very powerful and help accelerate uh, achievement in these and performance in these areas. So, how can people interact with you? online or in person? Oh, I appreciate that opportunity. Um, so I'm putting out most of my written word on michaelrucker.com. Um, I'm on Instagram at the wonder of fun and I'm on Twitter um, under the handle perform better. Is that is the wonder of fun going to be the title of your book? Is that the, word no, the, title, uh, the title of the book is the fun habit and you're the first Ooh. person to get that title. We've been all over the map of where we were going to land on the title and. Uh, you know, habits seem to be marketable right now. So I think, you know, a lot of titling a book ends up being what you think the market will want. And so yeah. I, originally I wanted to call out the bias, uh, a bias towards fun because ultimately that's the main message. You know, I, I, I concede I'm making a piece for the masses. I don't need to own. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I actually like that title, the, the fun habit. I love it. I love that's it. Awesome. Who's, who's, who's publishing it? Uh, so that's still out. We're going out this month um, okay. with a proposal. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, you know, I ended up self-publishing and I, you know, I, I'm incredibly grateful that I did. Uh, so good luck on that whole, the whole process of, of, uh, you know, the submitting manuscripts and all of those things. Yeah. <laughs> I it's, an adventure. It's, it's been fun. It's got peaks and valleys as I'm sure you're yes. intimately aware. Definitely. All right. Well, the first of the last three questions that I ask of every single guest. So if you could pick any skill set that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? I think dialing things up and dialing things down. That's been my big, you know, honing those skills that I already have. I'm actually working with a neuropsychologist to sort of understand. Um, to use the words of Nir Eyal, like what is um, traction and what is distraction. And mm. so to be able to continue to hone those, and if I could create them as superpowers, that would be amazing, right? Because mm. the more and more I sort of, you know, at least in my playground, understand productivity is our innate abilities to objectively turn things down that don't bring us, you know, the outcomes we're looking for. And, and for me, it's fun and and productivity, um, and then dialing things up that are really working, right? And so, I would love to, you know, continue to hone that as an amazing superpower. I mean, to the extent that you see that, you know, even with superheroes, right? Like people, uh, you know, uh, Flash Gordon or whatever. If you can kind of accelerate beyond normal capacity, then you know, you can kind of spin circles around your problems, right? And so I would totally. to continue to yeah. own that as a superpower. That's, that's awesome. I love that. I love that. Next question is, what are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from having fun? So the first one, obviously, is that we're doing work, right? When we're really just staying busy. I mean, that's hands down. That's not even my idea, right? You're just seeing that over and over again. Um, and there's so many people advocating for that, that um, at the end of the day, you know, we're telling ourselves, oh, you know, I've got this to finish. And that, and if you look at your time critically, you realize that you, um, you know, 
been surfing the internet for the last two hours, right? And you're going to count that as work if you're not really being deliberate. I think the second is that these internal triggers that we have when we are immersed in actual work, that we're doing something that's leading to that particular task, but it's not, right? And so one that comes to mind is, um, you know, you've indicated that you're an author. A lot of times, all I really should be writing words, right? Like if, you know, most writers have a habit, you know, just uh, I love Lamont's uh, Bird by Bird. Did that make your way? I, it was recommended no. to me by Tim no. Ferriss, but, hmm. um, you know, she's a fictional writer, but she wrote an amazing book about how just to write in general. And uh, so the anecdote is uh, her parents had told her brother who was struggling with a, uh, a report on birds you know, how do I do this? Because he had waited to the last minute. And it's like, you know, you just tackle it bird by bird, right? And so where I'm going with that is so many of us don't stay on task. You know, again, kind of borrowing some ideas from Nier's recent book, um, Indistractable, that we think that we're doing something, yet we'll use a diversionary tactic and to use your words, lie to ourselves. Like, hey, you know, um, I'm writing something on... uh, you know, the hedonic treadmill, let me just research it for the next 40 minutes, even though I blocked an hour, you know, to write um, and have more than enough material to kind of get the outline done. You know, it's a lot less of a cognitive load to go search around on the internet. Oh, and by the way, you know, here's another rabbit hole, you know, that has yeah. nothing to do with variable <laughs> reward, or excuse me, the hedonic treadmill, but it looks fun and it's distracting me from my Another task dude ahead. perfect video. Yeah, exactly. That's right. You know, but you know, the, the ones that get me are TED videos because those are sinkholes, right? And they're so awesome and they always do provide a little bit of value. But at the end of the day, they're really anecdotes because that's the value of, you know, TED and TEDx, right? Is containing one amazing nugget in the story. So at the end of the day, they rarely contribute to written word. And so, anyways, that's my. You know, oftentimes I'll start at school, uh, scholar.google.com. And then if I'm watching a TED video within 20 minutes, I know I've gone way off the rails, even though, <laughs> you know, to answer your question discreetly, the lie was that this is all for the purpose of, you know, being able to write, you know, the best way possible that day. And truly it wasn't. I could have, um, the better uh, approach would have been to get it down and then back up any of my ideas, you know, um, postmortem. Right. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that's it. And then I think the last, and we kind of touched on it, um, you know, throughout the podcast is this idea that you can be deliberate in your own environment and that you're not distracted. Right. So, uh, you know, again, I'll go back to the anecdote of my daughter's dance class, you know, that I have the ability to fully engage and enjoy her experience while I'm still fucking around on my phone. That's a complete lie. Um, and I think it's especially important for parents to hear that. That, you know, at the end of the day, if you're multitasking, then you're not having fun within that particular activity. And, you know, it's fine if you want to harm yourself. But if you're, you know, uh, multitasking while you're also supposed to be spending time with the ones that you love, they feel that. And there's just no way to skirt around that. When people mm-hmm. try to kid yourself, excuse me, when I hear people kidding themselves, um, but that's not the case. It's just not backed by science. Mm-hmm. And it's unfortunate. I mean, eye contact, I could go through a whole laundry list and I beat my, you know, I'm my own worst critic. I mean, I, you know, definitely throwing rocks at a glass house and realizing like, 
how much of the time my child was looking, you know, to, to see me, to see me in my eyes. Right. So, because that's the way before you really can communicate for affirmation yet, you know, they're seeing the the back of my head instead. Cause my head's down, you know, it's mm-hmm, awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. totally. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's very, very, very powerful lies that often grab us by the, uh, the neck and, and lead us when we can be leading them. The last question before I ask it, do, what's your favorite art form? I think mu- so to consume is music by far. Um, I do like to, you know, create videos and things of that nature. Um, but with regards to what fills my soul, I just yeah. love music. Okay, cool. So it's 100 years from now and you've left a set of instructions for a composer to create a piece of music that answers this question. How will Mike Rucker measure his life? What would the piece include? I think it would be a collage. So I've always liked for better or worse, because there are definitely purists in the world. Um, You know, when you are able to coalesce amazing different styles of music, like, you know, Travis Barker does this really well. And and there's certainly others. Um, And so the ability to mash up a whole host of eclectic different styles and sort of present them in a way that's magnificent, I think would surmise who I am to the best of that particular composer's ability. You know, it kind of is a great way to close this out, right? Because you had confessed that if someone looks at my resume, which has happened many times, they're like, yeah, I don't really get a good sense of who you are (laughs) um, because I have had, you know, so many different opportunities to be, you know, to wear different personas and have alter egos. And so, you know, sort of an amazing mashup, you know, if I could pick the composer, it'd probably be Girl Talk. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he's able to, you know, pull just the most amazing components of different genres and styles of music and create these amazing banger type hits. In fact, Hmm. I don't think he's done it that much because he pulled so much work from different people. I think uh, rightfully so recording folks you know started looking at him critically because um uh anyways i digress but you know to have that kind of mashup with just you know different elements of amazing music on that kind of crescendo into you know something where everyone is just super excited um you know and at, at the end of the song you know happy and joyful i think that would be amazing i love it i love it well dr mike rucker Thank you so much for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. I can't wait to get a copy of The Fun Habit when it releases in 2020. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This has been a blast. You bet. Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters, we could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact. Impact.